0: Welcome back to Inside the Daily Press. I'm Todd James, and I'm joined with Matt Hall. And today we continue our election podcast series with city council candidate Gleam Davis. Now, Gleam is an incumbent. She's been on city council since she was appointed back in 2009. She then won an election the next year for the remainder of that term, which was two years. And then she won uh, a four-year seat in 2012 and again in 2016. So she's now running for her third four-year seat and her fourth city council election in total. What can you tell us about Gleam?
1: All right. Yep. So Gleam's one of the incumbents. Um, She comes from a schools and education background and still has a lot of connections and friends and and interest in schools and education. Um, You know, she certainly has a lot of thoughts about the way the city has been has been running you know as as an incumbent a lot of people are laying a lot of the problems of the city at the feet of the incumbents you know rightly or wrongly like that's that's just what happens when you're the incumbent and so she certainly has a lot of knowledge about why decisions are made and what the city should and shouldn't be doing going forward Um, We should say this about the incumbents just as an FYI for folks. Some of the conversations that we're able to have with challengers around personnel decisions and the chief and specific projects, depending on when we had the conversation with city council members, they were prohibited um, by something called the Brown Act from discussing certain specific projects and they also are prohibited from giving specific thoughts on personnel decisions. So there's going to be some of these conversations where you're like, why didn't they ask them that question? And like, That's why, is that they can't actually answer all the questions. So, you know, we certainly have a lot of conversations with her about development and homelessness and crime. um, But some of the specific points that people might be wanting to hear about are absent just because we're limited. The the incumbents are limited in what they can say on some topic.
0: Great. Let's get into it. Matt Hall's interview of Councilmember Gleam Davis.
1: All right, folks, thanks for being here with us today. Today we are talking to Gleam Davis, who is a current sitting council person. Uh, Gleam, thank you for being here today. Why don't you take a minute to tell folks who you are in case they don't know and tell us why you're running for re-election.
2: All right. My name is Gleam Davis. I currently sit on the city council. I had the honor and pleasure of serving as the city's mayor in 2019. Um, I've lived in the city for over 34 years and I'm proud to say that uh, it has in that time become a much more livable and uh, exciting place to be. I'm running for re-election because we're obviously in a very uh, unique situation where we are impacted by COVID-19, we are of course like everyone else affected by the need to look into our history uh, and make sure that our future is more inclusive, fair, and just. And we also need to f- figure out how do we rebuild an economy that's by hit by a number of uh, uh, things beyond our control. And I think my experience and my reputation as being a thoughtful person are just what we need right now, and so I'm running for re-election.
1: Uh, gotcha. So, so you mentioned economic recovery there is it seems like that's that's a big theme for you is that correct absolutely so what is the city going to do like what's the city going to do to to re, restart or re-engineer the santa monica economy
2: So it's already done a number of things. I think you've seen the physical manifestation of that with our changing our rules to allow restaurants and businesses to move outdoors to avoid some of the limitations on indoor operations. We've also uh, modified our zoning ordinance to make it easier for businesses to get up and running or for existing businesses to make necessary physical changes. So we're already in that process. I think what we need to do in the future is remain as agile as we have been over the last few months and I think more importantly we need to focus on how we can support particularly our small businesses around town. We do have an economic recovery task force that is working very hard with our business community as well as residents and even people representing uh, our our visitor or tourist industry to make sure that what we're doing is creating a a city where people feel safe to come um, and patronize the businesses. That's our Santa Monica Shines project and I think by letting people know that we've set standards for businesses that will ensure that they're safe when they patronize our businesses, we'll be able to bring people back.
1: So I guess looking at sort of specific actions and, and policies here, right? Like the city opened up the outdoor dining program, right? That was a change. Um, what has the city done? What can, What more can the city do when it comes to trying to keep businesses open as they continue to struggle, right? Like the LA Times had a story, I think it was yesterday, about restaurants are just not going to be able to pay their rents when the eviction moratoriums end. Like, they just can't pay. And so assuming that is going to be regional, right? Like assuming there's going to be other Santa Monica businesses that are going to find themselves simply unable to pay rents, what, what can the city do about that?
2: Well, so the first instance, the new state law that affects our ability to um, create new eviction moratoriums only applied to residences, not businesses. So we've established our eviction moratorium to go on for several more months with regards to commercial properties. The second thing I think we can do is look for more ways to ensure that existing businesses can operate in a more fulsome way. Um, obviously, outdoor dining and outdoor display of wares is part of it but we really need to figure out uh, how can we help businesses adapt to the new climate? And some of that is working with our business improvement districts to, again, advertise in effect that if you're looking for a safe place to come and shop, Santa Monica is the place to be. We also need to, of course, recognize, and this was true before the pandemic hit, that retail has changed dramatically over the last few years. That's why we created the Buy Local program. When you buy local, you're putting money into the local economy so that a small business owner uh, can buy socks for, for her kids or she can uh, purchase piano lessons uh, for her children here locally, when you shop on Amazon, you're putting money in Jeff Bezos' pocket. I don't think he needs any more money. So for me, it's really about getting the message out that we're all in this together, that if we really want all of our city services to come back the way they were, um, hopefully delivered in a more efficient process, but you know, for example, getting our libraries back open when it's safe to do so, what we all need to do is stop hitting the Amazon buy button and start going out and shopping locally.
1: Right. And that's, that's easy to say that people just need to come out and, you know, spend more, but there's that, that only goes so far in this problem. Right. And so the Santa Monica can extend its eviction moratorium. I mean, not ad nauseum, but at a certain point that back rent is due. And, you know, one of the things that people have spoken about is that either like landlords or property owners who can't pay their mortgages because they're not, maybe not getting their rent. Like eventually that puts them into foreclosure, which is a isn't great for local businesses or the city or eventually restaurants business owners retailers have to pay that back rent and if they can't because they haven't made triple or triple money over the next whatever amount of time they can open they're still they're still essentially facing foreclosure they're just facing it further down the line um, and I guess are you worried about that is that is that a concern that you, you think this economic problem is going to persist and and be a drawn out phenomenon, or I mean, do you think there's a light at the end of the tunnel that we're going to get over it?
2: Well, so let me say two things, and one is that uh, this is one of the reasons I think our national election is going to have local implications. One of the things that's been so disappointing during. Uh, the past few months is the refusal of the federal government, uh, which is the one government level of government that can deficit spend, to use that power to provide direct subsidies to state and local governments, as well as more meaningful relief to small and medium-sized businesses. Um, So for me, part of it is how can we help businesses hang on until we hopefully get a change in the administration at the federal level and get some meaningful relief? I mean, one of the things that's really true is that The city is ready, willing to help small businesses, but we're not able because of our own economic crisis. Um, In addition, as we all know, the Paycheck Protection Program, a large amount of that money did not go to small businesses, but went instead to larger businesses and other uh, uh, entities that maybe didn't need the relief as much as small businesses did. And we know that at least the House of Representatives so far has passed a Plan called the Heroes Act to address a large amount of those pro- a large number of those problems, but it's not going to get through the Senate. It's not going to get past the president. So this is a case where the national election will really have local implications. So that's one thing: is how do we help people hang on until hopefully there's a change in the federal administration? Two, I think I, I don't think we're there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's light somewhere, but we're not seeing it yet. But I think the longer uh, grace period, if you will, that we can provide to local businesses gives us an opportunity to get our local economy back on track, at least in some areas. We're starting to see more tourists come back, for example. And that will give us more money in our city coffers, which will help us help small businesses Uh, meet some of these challenges that they're eventually going to face down the line. Just like when we had some extra cash available as the city, we used it to provide uh, relief for some tenants who were on the verge of being uh, not evicted for rent because we had a rent moratorium, but to allow some tenants to pay their rents so that they didn't get deeper into a hole. And we even used city funds so that we could um, even give that kind of subsidy to undocumented persons who were not able to use the community development block grant money from the feds that we were using for the larger program. So if we get more money in the city coffers, either from the feds or from a upturn in the economy, we'll be able to do the same for small businesses.
1: So when you talk about the sort of the rent subsidy there, you, you were talking about for individuals, right? The, for, for people. Yes. So yes. can the city implement a rent subsidy for commercial businesses? I, I guess I thought, given discussions that are Occurred in the past about rent control and that kind of thing. That I didn't think the city was able to use public money to subsidize the rent for commercial enterprises. I thought that was a a no no.
2: Well, that you know, I'll be honest with you, I haven't done the legal research myself or asked the city attorney, but I believe that we could give subsidies to small businesses that they could use in whole or in part uh, to pay existing rents. I'm not sure why we couldn't. We, we give subsidies to businesses uh, for other things, you know, in response. You know, it could be one of those things where we can give you some rent relief if sort of like the federal government did, you know, once you get back to your pre-COVID level of employment or something like that. So I, I haven't investigated the legality of it, but I'm not really sure why we couldn't give some sort of relief to um Two businesses. And even if we couldn't do it directly as the city, we have the We Are Santa Monica Fund, which anybody can contribute to. I've personally contributed to it. And that fund, which is uh, operated as a nonprofit, can in fact help small businesses. So even if the city couldn't do it directly, we could, by raising money for the We Are Santa Monica Fund, provide some level of relief to our local businesses.
1: Gotcha, and, and earlier you, you talked about um... Letting people know that Santa Monica was, you know, a safe place to come and shop in. And I think you were, when you said safe place there, you were referring to safe in the sense of COVID restrictions and outdoor spaces and vent, like that was, that was where you were going with that statement. Is that right? Yes, yes. And so, so I get that's where you were going with it. But, you know, I think when you talk about safe place to shop, like there are, I mean, I've had conversations with, with, property owners downtown who say that the reason they can't get someone to take their vacancies is because of the homeless problem and that people just don't want to shop on the promenade or in certain sections of Santa Monica because they don't feel safe. And not that they don't feel safe in COVID, they don't feel safe given the the level of homelessness that they experience as they're trying to go about their, their errands for the day. And so, you know, that's, well, I get that's not where you were going with that statement. I think that's part of that discussion and That certainly segues into the discussions around homelessness so you know what how do you describe the state of homelessness in the city today
2: well having a single homeless person on the street who is is one too many um so but let me back up to your question about businesses saying well we can't get people to come because of the homeless problem um I, I'm not going to you know, say people don't know what they're talking about because I don't own property on the promenade. What I will say is uh, we had homelessness decrease over 8% in the last year while our neighboring city and county went up by double digits. Um, and, and before the shift in retail... Uh, We had homeless people on the promenade, and yet the businesses were flourishing. That's not to say that homelessness clearly isn't something that people take into account, perhaps, when they decide where to go and spend a day or an evening. But the fact of the matter is, I think if you look historically, the fact that we have had, unfortunately and very sadly, some people experiencing homelessness on our streets has not necessarily been an impediment um, to, to economic survival. I think they people experiencing homelessness become easy scapegoats. Um, and, and I don't think we should let that happen. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and do something about the homeless process problem. There are a couple of things to remember. First, it's a regional problem. So we need regional solutions. And we have been working through our Westside Council of Government and with the Veterans Affairs Administration uh, to look for lots of opportunities to build permanent supportive housing or even bridge housing for homeless persons. Um, certainly, the VA would be a great place for, for veterans to go. They've been moving much slower than anyone would like, but they are moving. Um, and we are working with our nearby cities to create a network of places where people who are experiencing homelessness can go. On top of that, what we're doing is trying to take a multi-prong approach. There's no one-size-fits-all solution to homelessness. So yes, we have adopted a housing-first model, but if we're going to put people in homes, which we should, a lot of them need uh, emotional, mental health, other types of social service supports. So I support building permanent supportive housing where we can move people in, but not just dump them into an apartment, but give them supportive services that will help them thrive once they're housed. Uh, We also have a program where we actually connect homeless people with their families outside of Santa Monica. And we make sure that those families are willing to welcome them. And we uh, take the financial responsibility of getting those people off our streets and reconnected with their families. We have our Homeless Liaison Program, which works with Ron Hooks and uh, goes out and proactively meets with homeless folks where they are. West Coast Care is a wonderful resource. So In response to some of the reforms suggested by the Public uh, Safety Reform Advisory Committee, we are adding uh, additional mental health uh, resources to our outreach program so that we're able to reach people not just during business hours, Monday through Friday, but over the weekends as well. So we're doing a lot to try and tackle the problem of persistent homelessness. It's not gonna go away overnight. But I do think what's important to know is that we're aware of the problem. It's a regional problem. We're working regionally to solve it. We are having greater degrees of success than some of our neighbors. And I think that's because we're all very committed to addressing it. Obviously, that will hopefully uh, be consistent with what you say you've been hearing, that if we can begin to address the problems of homelessness more comprehensively, and in theory, uh, get people off the street and into housing, then that won't be an impediment to economic recovery. I do want to give a shout out to downtown Santa Monica, which has actually specifically trained some of its ambassadors to interact with persons experiencing homelessness. I've had by sheer serendipity the opportunity to view a couple of them um, in action and they're wonderful. They have cut down, I think, on some of the, what I'll call undesirable or antisocial behavior. When they see someone acting up, um, they try and quell it without the need for a police officer, but you know, they have the authority that if in fact, uh, you know, public safety needs to be called, they can do that as well. So this is a problem we all recognize and we're all trying to work together to solve it um, to the greatest extent possible.
1: So, yeah, I, I, Santa Monica definitely had a decrease in homelessness according to the homeless count, right? And depending mm-hmm. on how you count the numbers and who you compare it to, and I say depending on how you count, because Los Angeles County sometimes breaks things up by what they call that SPA, which is a sort of a meaningless geographical distinction. Sometimes they break it down by city. There's lots of ways to break it down. But any way you break it down, Santa Monica did have a decrease in this year's homeless count, but it had increases and large increases prior to that and when when we talk about you know the the feeling of homelessness like uh, this morning actually so yesterday so we're talking now on monday sunday morning i was here in our office we're at the 1600 block of fifth street there were 12 people sleeping on this block on like just straight up 12 people you had to walk over to get from colorado to olympic on this block and i think that that is a lot of what people are seeing, right? Like that's, that's, a, that's a huge impediment to people trying to do business. Now, on our block, there's not a lot of retail, so they're not doing a huge amount of business here. But I think that experience is magnified now. And when we talk about, you know, businesses thriving on the promenade beforehand, like there were vacancies on the promenade, right? And prior to COVID, our discussion around vacancies would have talked about rents being too high, and a vacancy tax, and why are landlords charging so much, right? But now, with COVID wiping out the business traffic, I think the visual impression of the homelessness on the promenade and on Main Street and other places is much greater. And I do think that while the number may be the same, maybe it's the same number of homeless people that was on the promenade, when you look, go to the promenade now or when you went a couple of weeks ago and it was devoid of economic activity, but it had the same 25 homeless people who were there in January, that's a takeaway, right? And I think that's partly where the downtown business owners are coming from in that it, it's times have changed, right? And what was tolerable in January is now a contributing factor to their economic recovery, Um. And so I'm not discounting the, the decrease in homelessness. I absolutely see that. And I get the homeless multi-disciplinary street teams and C3 and like Ron Hook does great work, right? But it's still a huge point of contention for residents, right? And it, it's still, I think it's one of the top three things that anybody cares about right now. Well, and
2: I and and it's one of my top three issues that if I'm reelected, I want to address. I, I'm not suggesting that oh, we're doing such a great job in homelessness that we don't need to do any more. We need to put more resources into addressing the problem, and we need to look for more creative solutions. But I do think it's important for people to realize a couple of things. You know, I've heard some people say, well, I would just arrest all the homeless people. Well, you can't do that. It's not illegal to be homeless.
1: No, that's um, both unethical and illegal.
2: Right, and, and I've heard other people say that we should build housing for them, but not in Santa Monica, which I believe is also unethical and illegal. Like, we're gonna build housing for you out in Palmdale and put you on a bus is not a solution to our homelessness problem. People also need to understand that there have been changes in uh, the way, unfortunately, or our ability to enforce the law with regard to certain really undesirable behavior. For example, Through state law initiatives, um, a lot of things that used to be misdemeanors are now infractions. A lot of things that used to be felonies are now misdemeanors. And so, for example, if someone is involved in the public use of illegal drugs, that's an infraction. The police, even if I see them do it, I can't call the police and say, hey, I saw that gentleman uh, uh, smoking crack over there because that's an infraction and the police have to actually see it themselves in order to even write a ticket just like I can't report you for speeding down the freeway they actually have to catch you at it so we do have a lot of challenges some of them are you know imposed on us by changes in state law or some of them are imposed on us by the state of federal law so so it's not just a question of oh let's you know arrest everyone who's ever committed any criminal act. That's just not feasible. I mean, I always tell people, you know, if you want a police officer to arrest someone for a minor infraction, they can do it. That person will be out of the jail before the police officer is done writing up the report. So that's not to say we shouldn't enforce the law. We should. But unless we're going to put a police person on on literally every corner, You know, just like with speeding on the highway or running stop signs in our residential neighborhoods, when we see it, we stop it, but we just don't see all the infractions. And so I think what we need to do is try and come up with a broader, more humane, more dignified, and legal solution, which involves addressing the needs of the people who are homeless on our streets and making sure that whatever has caused them to become homeless, whether it's economic, Uh, forces or whether it's um, sad addiction or mental health, we need to provide services. I'm a huge believer that if we were to provide, working with the county, because it's important to remember the county is the primary provider of mental health services in Los Angeles County, but if we were able to open a community mental health center and provide a broader range of Uh, mental health services to our entire population, not just the homeless population. One, we would stop people from falling into homelessness. And two, we might be able to get people who currently are on the street in a better place mentally where they're better able to participate in their uh, their ability uh, to leave our streets and move into housing. So if you asked me, what are we not doing now that we could do more of in the future? I would say look for opportunities to invest in community mental health.
1: Gotcha. So um, you mentioned the, so there's a little bit of a conflation there between uh, quality of life crimes and homelessness, and I, some of those are overlapping and some of them aren't, right? Like encampments, homelessness, but when we talk about some of the things you referenced, infractions, misdemeanors, felonies, you know, that's those are Props 47 and 57 that radically changed how uh, law, not how laws could be enforced, but how punishments were meted out, right? And there are just some things that you simply can't take someone to jail for. There are some things that if you take someone to jail, they will be released immediately for. There are some things that even if someone were to be sentenced to jail time due to overcrowding and other restrictions, they can serve as little as 10% of that sentence, which may in fact be the two or three days they spent in the local holding cell and are then just released back on the street, right? Like, that's definitely a problem. So getting into that subject for a second, like, do you— so there's a, there's a ballot proposition this November that would undo some of those restrictions, right? That would actually change the way 47 and 57 work. Uh, do, do you, how do you feel about that? Do you support that ballot initiative?
2: You know, I've been trying to research that ballot initiative because the one, you know, 47 and 57 were passed for three reasons. And one, and I think maybe the most important one, is that a lot of the things that people were being arrested for were having a disproportionate impact on communities of color and people who were economically disadvantaged. And so those uh, propositions were passed in order to reduce um, you know, the, the unfair and unjust fact that uh, people of color are just you know, orders of magnitude more likely to be incarcerated. I haven't found anything that suggests that the ballot measure that's currently on would be able to avoid going back to that situation. So I haven't expressed an opinion about it because I don't feel like I know enough about it. But if by passing that ballot measure, we went back to the original situation where uh, people of color and people who didn't have the means uh, to defend themselves were being disproportionately incarcerated, I would not support that. Now, the other two reasons I think things were passed was the counties in the state wanted to reallocate responsibilities because the state said, we're spending way too much money incarcerating people, and so we're going to push some of that cost back down onto the county, at least in LA County. I can't speak for every county, but that county was already overburdened. Now, one of the things I'm very proud about is that our supervisor, Sheila Kuehl, along with other members of the County Board of Supervisors, Are trying to address that issue by instead of building more jails, building more true rehabilitative uh, centers where people who are arrested for drug possession, drug addiction, that sort of thing can actually receive treatment as opposed to simply being warehoused in jail cells. Um, But I'm not sure every county is doing that. You know, the third reason I think those propositions passed was because people were concerned, you know, that a lot of people were getting, having criminal records that made it impossible for them to be employed. Um, You know, it's the whole idea from the ban the box problem where if you had a drug conviction on your resume, you had to disclose it, uh, you know, in an employment interview and that could keep you from being gainfully employed even though it was a relatively minor infraction, you know, where, you know, say smoking marijuana when smoking marijuana was illegal or whatever. Um, And so I am not in favor of rolling back uh, the opportunity to uh, make people more employable, let counties do a better job of rehabilitating people instead of simply incarcerating them, or creating a situation where communities of color and poor people are more likely to be incarcerated. So at this point, I can't say that I support the ballot measure. I'm still trying to do some research, but I'll be honest with you, I'm shocked about how little information there is out there about it.
1: So another way to to look at this is uh, George Gascon, who uh, wrote, I think, 47 um, is now when he was up in San Francisco, is now running for D.A. here in Los Angeles against Jackie Lacey. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, have you thought about who that race and who you're going to vote for between those two?
2: Uh, As things currently stand, I'm voting for George Gascon, Um, I think because and, and, you know, it's uh, I think Jackie Lacey has done some very good things as DA, but I think, and this goes to my previous statements, that we really do need to rethink the criminal justice system, and I think he is more open to doing that. I think that he is much more focused on how do we reduce the punitive nature particularly where property and small crimes are involved, and how do we rehabilitate people so they don't come back out on the street and commit the same crime over and over. I mean, one of the results of Prop 47, and I don't have any statistics to know if this is true or not, but I've certainly heard a lot of people say it, is that a lot of the uptick that Santa Monica and other communities saw in property crime was because when we downgraded property crimes from felonies to misdemeanors, the people who committed those crimes were like, gee, I can get away with it. And, you know, yeah, I get arrested and maybe I go to my hearing, maybe I don't. And so by reducing the incentive... Um, or the disincentive on those crimes, we actually saw an uptick in them. But I think if we have a district attorney's office and a justice system that says, why are you committing these crimes? Why are you stealing? Are you stealing because you're poor, because you're uneducated, because you don't have job prospects? Then I think there's a way to reduce crime without having to make more people criminals and incarcerate more people. And I think he's more attuned to that idea than Miss Lacey is.
1: Gotcha. And, you know, now we've sort of deviated away from Santa Monica into bigger issues. But, you know, I think this, the reason I ask those questions is because they all come back to the situation at hand, which is there's a lot of quality of life crimes here, right? And mm-hmm. and the, when, like, when we talk about the idea of, you know, repeat offenders, again, I, I also don't have a statistical uh, analysis at my fingertips. But having spoken to the police department about this many, many, many times, there uh, seems to be part of the reason we have so many of the same crimes is because we have one dude or woman who just commits the crime over and over again, right? And in years past, you could take someone off the streets and they might be off the streets for 30 days, 90 days, whatever it might be. And in that window, they wouldn't be available to commit crimes, right? Now they may be off the streets, if at all, for three days, right? And so if you just run the numbers, (laughs) there's 10 times more opportunity to commit a crime in a 30 day window If they're on the streets every third day um
2: yeah and and, and i think that and i think when you look at the types of crimes that we're seeing for example we see a lot of bike theft well it turns out there are literally bike chop shops just like there are auto chop shops you know where bikes are broken apart for for their parts and um and and shipped all over the place so they can't be recovered that sort of thing Um, we see a lot of catalytic converters being stolen. And it's my understanding from talking to some of the officers who've investigated those property crimes, they believe that is an organized effort. You know, they're a group of people who know how to go in, remove a catalytic converter off of certain automobiles very quickly without being detected. And, you know, they, they, I, I, I shouldn't say this, but they're kind of like, you know, swarms of bees, right? They move from city to city. So you see a big swarm of catalytic converter thefts in one place like Santa Monica. And then they say, okay, we've kind of gotten all the easy pickings there and we'll move into Culver City or something like that. So I think we're also seeing and some of this has to do with just technology. Quite honestly, it's easier to communicate, um, you know, that that we see people who are more organized uh, in their criminal activity. And that also makes it a greater challenge for us to address.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I don't know how much information we want to give to people on why things are stolen, but a catalytic converter, just in case people are wondering, are full of precious metals, and so they have a high value to uh, metal recyclers. And without, you know, you can etch a serial number in them, but without that, they're also virtually untraceable, right? right? So that's that's why, just in case people are wondering, why is this weird piece of equipment being stolen? It's it's like ripping out the copper pipes from a construction site, right? They They're the highest value, easiest stolen item off your car, just... FYI. Um, and so what you mentioned there, though, is the sophistication or, or organization, right, which I think leads us to a, a another public safety discussion here, which is what happened here on May 31st, which was organized and coordinated and very much separate from a quality of life incident, right? Like there's – I think there's a, there's a difference between day-to-day quality of life issues and crimes and huge issues on May 31st. And the example I give around that is like no one's talking about bringing out the armored car and tear gas for shoplifters, right? No one's talking about breaking out rubber bullets for bike chop shops, but May 31st, that's how that was. Those were the tools available, right? So there is a public safety argument, but it's a different public safety discussion from your day-to-day police operations. So You know, that's when I said earlier about the the, the three things people care about right now, right? Like crime, homelessness. Uh, I think development is currently a hot button topic because we're about to have a development discussion in the next couple of days. And when we talk about crime, people, some people really care about the quality of life crimes. And I think there's other people who only care about the looting and rioting that experienced that day. How do you think the city did on May 31st and what do you think the city is going to do in terms of learning lessons from that or moving forward? And I, I asked that question a certain way and we should tell listeners up front, you are limited in what you can and can't say about personnel because there are laws that prohibit you from discussing personnel matters in this this venue, right? So listeners who are wanting you to talk about firing the police chief aren't going to get that discussion here because you are prohibited from having that discussion at this point in a public venue. So setting, setting the stage there for folks.
2: I I should also say that, you know, it's very clear that the charter gives the ability to um, hire and fire the police chief to the city manager and that it's a violation of the charter, even outside of a public podcast for the city council to try and affect in any meaningful way uh, the the city manager's decision. That's not to say we're not entitled to have opinions, but we cannot insert ourselves into employment discussions. So I just want right. people to think it's not just that it, it's not just for public consumption. It's even at a private level. Um, you know, the, the city council has limits on on the interactions it can have or the input it can give vis a vis any any employee of the city, except for the three to directly report to the city council, which are the city manager, the city attorney, and the city clerk. Um, so, so May thirty first broke my heart. Um, seeing tear gas and and rubber bullets used, um, particularly on a day that was supposed to be peaceful protests, uh, was not anything I had ever thought I would see in Santa Monica. Um, and and I'll be honest, I th- I think, you know, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, and I'm not going to ascribe it to any particular person. You know, it, it was a failure. Um, I do think that I and no one else really has a completely comprehensive grasp of everything that happened that day. That is the point of creating the after action report. Um, I, I think our police department was overly optimistic in thinking they could get it done within, you know, three months. It turns out that they don't have the bandwidth to do that. And so we have now agreed to to hire uh, a consultant to work with them on developing that after-action report because I think that our, our residents, our businesses, and even our visitors um, expect to have a high-quality, accurate report and, and we should not deliver anything less. Um, and that's going to take some time. And not having seen it, it's impossible for me to... Um, you know, evaluate this was done right or this was done wrong because I'm not sure I have a complete handle even at this point on, on all the orders that were given and who made what decision and that sort of thing. So I can't opine on that. I can just say that seeing uh, that situation in Santa Monica was heartbreaking. I do want to make it clear that it's my understanding and I don't have, have uh, you know great evidence of this that there were people uh, in town who were uh, threatening to do damage to some of our most beloved landmarks. Um, the pier um, in particular uh, ha- and, and people I believe had incendiary devices on them, I've been told that. And you know, I, I think that had the pier burned down um, or been burned down uh, because people I believe said they wanted to burn down the pier would have been we'd be having maybe a somewhat different discussion because and i don't want to minimize what happened to anyone on that day whether it was physical injury or damage to their business but but the peer would have never been replaced i mean that's just the sort of icon you can't rebuild in any meaningful way it would in this day and age it would have been too much money and it would have been too difficult and um, and so saving the pier, if, if that was part of the motivation for the actions that we're taking that day, I think was a good motivation. Uh, similarly, protecting the promenade. I've heard some people refer to it, oh, it's a touristy place. But I think of the promenade as sort of the heartbeat of our city, both from an economic perspective, but also it's, it's our city's living room. It's where people go, um, you know, when we can go back to movies, go to movies, go to grab a bite to eat. Um, do a little shopping. And and I think that, you know, had that been completely destroyed on May 31st, uh, we would have all been very sad about that. Now, obviously, a lot of businesses were destroyed on May 31st. I believe most of them um, are on the mend. Of course, Sushi House was burned out. And, and I think they're still, uh, they're obviously still closed. And I don't know what the status of that business is. But you know, some of the businesses that were looted, um, vans, REI, um, uh, Roadrunners, they've they're reopened. Um, and And it broke my heart to see what happened there. But it's also my understanding, and this goes back maybe to the discussion we were having about crime, is that what happened in Santa Monica was different than what had been seen even the previous few nights, that the previous few nights where there had been civil unrest, and there had been windows broken and vandalism and looting, that those appeared to be... Sorry, I bumped out again. I don't know how to turn that off so my phone doesn't ring, so I'll start off again. That what, what happened the previous few nights um, in terms of both looting and vandalism appeared to be crimes of opportunity. In other words, there was a protest and some people were within the protest and saw an opportunity to break some windows or steal some merchandise. What happened in Santa Monica on May 31st, and again, the after action report, I believe will address this, but I've been told that the preliminary analysis is that it was very organized. You literally had people driving into the city, uh, letting people out of the car. They had you know, a, a feel for the city about where they wanted to go. They wanted to to go to shoe stores. They wanted to go to pharmacies. they wanted to go to places that sold liquor. Um, they, they stole clothing they they didn't go to some of our more eclectic places um, uh, you know they stole musical instruments and electronics. Uh, but they didn't go to some of our more eclectic shopping opportunities um, because that wasn't what they were interested in. They wanted. Uh, merchandise it was easy to sell um, and that there was an easy market for where people wouldn't ask too many questions I guess but um, that they they knew where they wanted to be that these cars would drop them off that they were literally you know go around the block timing themselves and then hop in the car with whatever they could grab from that store and and take off and then another car the same thing very organized um, uh, uh, communicating via technology, and that that was something that had not really, if it had happened on the previous few nights, nobody was aware of it. And so we were really seeing something new. And that's not an excuse. It's not a defense. But it does demonstrate that, you know, we were the the police department in the community, you know, we're seeing something that had not happened before. And that will all have to be taken into effect uh, into account as we you know sort of analyze and self reflect on the entire city's uh performance on that day
1: Gotcha. And so uh, when we talk about there's some other things I want us to get to because we're, we're time is ticking away here. Sure. Um so I understand what we're saying and and just for folks knowledge like we've been this teaser that the pier was under threat I've heard since you know the day after like June 1st, I started to hear the pier was under threat. Like, maybe. like, And you're right. We'll wait and see, right? And I I do think there's something to be said for if the narrative emerges that the police department saved the pier from burning down, I do think that would have changed or will change some minds about it. Um, But I do think that that tidbit, teaser, narrative it's been essentially unsourced at this point in time. Uh, you know, no one's willing to go on the record with explaining where that tip comes from. And I'm not blaming you for that because I've heard it from police officers and other, other pe- lots and lots of people seem to have that piece of information. It's just no one can explain entirely where it came from. Um, at least for me, that's deeply frustrating, right? Like if it's, if we know that and we know that it came from somewhere, it would just be nice to be able to discuss where it came from and, you know, have the open discussion, but... C'est la vie. We'll have to wait until the After Action Report comes out, I guess, to evaluate that that critique. Um, but like I said, we've got you know, we're forty five minutes in here and so we're we're rapidly approaching sort of my artificial time limit on these, which is trying to keep them to about an hour. And there's lots there's lots of other things to talk about. Um, let me say real quick, is there, is there a subject you wanted to talk about before we move on to some of the other things that I think are front of mind for folks?
2: Well, I don't know if it's on your, your list of things to discuss, um, but, uh, but I think we have to talk about housing. So if that's on your list, I'll wait till you get to it. No, we, we, not, can, we, we can jump into it now.
1: We, yeah, we can jump into housing, and I think housing slash development, I think, is you know combo topic. So what, what, what is it you want to say about housing?
2: so what i want to say about housing is that housing is a civil right and that you know the sometimes this in some ways goes back to our discussion about homelessness that that people have a right to be housed and not housed in a way that where they're paying 70 percent of their of their income their net income to pay for their housing or whatever but that they the housing is affordable to them that it's appropriate for them that we're not shoving you know, 14 people into a one bedroom, that sort of thing. Um, And I think that we as a city need to recognize that the regional housing needs assessment numbers that we've been assigned by the Southern California Association of Governments and by the state are, are, are meaningful numbers. And they're not going to be easily met, but we need to make good faith efforts to meet them. And, you know, a majority of the housing that needs to be developed under that plan has to be you know, deemed affordable. Um, and and we have to use all the tools in our toolbox to build affordable housing. So that means, for example, can we use uh, some public land like we're going to do when we tear down parking structure three and allow housing to be built there? That will presumably be deed restricted affordable and or uh, permanent supportive housing for formerly homeless individuals. Uh, are there other city properties we can use that are appropriate for that? We all, another tool in the toolbox is our inclusionary requirements that, you know, we don't seem to have a lot of problem uh, convincing market rate housing developers to come to Santa Monica, and so we need to continue to require that as part of their uh, coming to Santa Monica, they include in their project a significant amount of deed restricted affordable housing. We need to look for ways to rebuild our housing trust fund so we can continue to support the efforts of nonprofit housing providers like Community Corps of Santa Monica. But the fact of the matter is that we are going to have to build this housing. And if we don't, it's important to people to realize that there will be uh, consequences that, you know, one of the things that has happened over the last couple of years is that, you know, a lot of cities were famous for sort of ignoring their housing requirements under RENA and SCAG, and nobody cared. Now there are going to be real penalties if you don't make good faith efforts to get to your numbers. And so I think that uh, we need to make a good faith effort to do that. I support that effort. And that's going to mean looking, as I said, that every tool in the toolbox to figure out how do we build Housing that uh, accommodates the, the numbers we need to accommodate, but also is fair and just. Um, you know, we want to make sure that economically disadvantaged people have opportunities to quality housing, affordable housing. We want to make sure that our missing middle uh, folks who don't tend to get a lot of housing built for them, our nurses, our teachers, uh, the person who owns the local dry cleaning store, that they can live in Santa Monica as well. And that's important not only from a housing perspective, in my idea that housing is a civil right, but also from a sustainability perspective. If, if we don't build affordable housing in Santa Monica and in the West L.A. region generally, people are not going to vaporize. They're just going to move to where housing is more affordable, which currently is in remote regions of the valley, whether it's the San Fernando Valley or the Antelope Valley or the San Gabriel. Gabriel Valley, or the Imperial Valley. And the way they're going to get to their jobs in Santa Monica, because those jobs aren't going anywhere, is they're going to get in their car and drive. And we now see with these fires and floods and hurricanes, what the effect of people being in their cars for two hours, driving, you know, 40, 50, 60 mile commutes is, is that we are destroying our planet. So housing is a civil right. But if also impacts our our absolute right to breathe, our right to live, the sustainability on our planet. We've got to build housing near jobs. And I know some people have said, well, just move the jobs out to where the housing is, but that's not how it works. Um, We don't get to tell people where to put their jobs. Um, We're Silicon Beach for a reason, and there's tech jobs here. But there's also, you couldn't take, for example, the jobs in the hospitality industry and move them out to Chino Hills, because Chino Hills isn't gonna support the kind of hospitality industry that we have here. So, so I think people have to be realistic. They can't just put, you know, bumper sticker slogans and think that's going to solve the problem. So, um, the, you know, those are my thoughts about housing. But I think it's really important that we recognize we're going to have to build a lot more housing, and we're going to have to use a lot of different tools to do it.
1: Gotcha. And I, I think I was going to ask some follow up questions there, but I think you, you, you expressed, you answered them. It's clear that you your thoughts there are very clear. You think we do need more housing. You think we need to hit the arena numbers. Um, you expressed why, like, you know, we, again, we could delve into more detail on that. But again, t- time is a ticking. So I don't sure. want us to, to lose. You've got to get to other stuff as well. So similar to the Brown Act uh, on personal personnel decisions, we're having this conversation prior to the, the city council talking about the Miramar discussion. And so, you are not going to be able to tell us how you're going to vote on that because that's that's how the Brown Act works. So I understand with the Miramar specifically, you can't talk about that. Just, if we're having this conversation two days from now, we could, but today it's a little bit awkward timing. Um, however, other big downtown developments, some are already under construction, right? Like you know, Lincoln and Olympic, uh, Fifth and Broadway, those two projects are already well underway. Um, Outside of the Miramar, we've got the plaza at 4th, 5th, and Arizona. You know, at the back of the pipeline, which people kind of have forgotten about, but there's the the Frank Gehry Design Project, which I guess is called the Ocean Avenue Project, I think. I have no idea. Everyone calls it the Gehry Project. Like, I guess it's got a name.
2: That's how I think about it.
1: Yeah, so does everyone else. Like, apparently it has a name, and I don't mean to be dismissive, but, like, no one knows it. So it's the Gehry Project. So – When you're, how do you feel about that? There's people in town who think none of those projects should be approved, none of those projects should be built. They think, you know, usability of Lincoln will be destroyed by these, the multi use project that's going in. There's lots of people who are adamantly, vehemently opposed to the plaza project, um, including the group that's recently filed a lawsuit. And I know you're not going to be able to comment on a pending lawsuit, but why do you, let's start with the plaza, I guess. Why do you think it's a valuable project to put some kind of mixed-use development on that site?
2: So it's important to remember that's exactly why we acquired all those parcels um, over a number of years. Uh, That that project was uh, deep into that process of acquiring those parcels even before I got on the council. The idea was to create a gathering space in the middle of our city, that would provide the kind of opportunity that people have been clamoring for. For example, a permanent home for the ice rink, uh, an opportunity to have a non-linear plaza. The promenade is wonderful, but it's very linear. You know, A place that you can put out table and chairs and maybe have a, a sandwich shop and some other food purveyors. And you can go and grab some lunch and sit out in our glorious Santa Monica weather. Um, that but we also have to recognize that whatever we put there has to be self-sustaining economically and particularly now not just self-sustaining but actually provide uh, a source of income to the city and so you know we've heard for example "Well, turn it into a park well a park isn't going to pay for anything um, and and so it would not uh, be economically wise to use something that didn't generate income on that site Similarly, uh, you know, people were, well, maybe we should just build housing there and nothing else. Again, housing, while I'm a firm believer in building more housing, you just heard me go into that at length. um, Again, it was not going to pay, reimburse the city for the cost of acquiring those parcels. Uh, So we had to come up with something that provided an economic benefit to the city, but also would be a centerpiece for the city. Now, no one has approved the Plaza project in its current or in any form yet. All we did with our most recent action was say, instead of going back to the drawing board, let's just continue exclusive negotiations with Claret West, the current developer. Um, and if anyone who listened to that hearing knows that the city council, uh, I think to a member, uh, all recognize the need that what may have suited the city seven or eight years ago, there needed to be some thinking about hitting the reset button. Now that didn't mean that it wouldn't have necessarily have a hotel, but for example, uh, the original proposal was to include some uh, cultural space. Um, that cultural space was very expensive to the project because it was going to be subsidized. So I, for example, suggested, since that cultural space was supposed to be the children's museum, which has now moved into and is beautiful um, uh, at, at Santa Monica Place, that we take that component out, which provides uh, greater opportunity for the city to to get some income from the plaza, but also opens up the potential for more open space at the ground floor. Uh, other people asked for a rethink about some of the architectural designs. Other people asked for rethinking about the use of the commercial space. So all we did was say, let's keep negotiating with this particular developer, let, you know, this person who's going to build this project, and let's but let's rethink about what we want it to look like now in light of changing circumstances, changing needs for the city, that sort of thing. So we'll see what they bring back. And if they say come back and say, you asked us to do a lot of things and we can't afford to do it, then that's uh, something we'll live with. But uh, so in terms of the plaza, all we did was say, let's hit the reset button, but let's continue to negotiate with this particular builder so that uh, we don't have to literally go back to stair- square one throw away sort of eight years of work, let's rethink the project as it currently stands.
1: Gotcha. So we're, we're now at that hour mark and legacy. Like there's a lot we could talk about with all the candidates that we haven't gotten to. So, But I w- wanna say that at this point, um, one of the reasons we're cutting it off at an hour is because folks don't listen to long podcasts as much. And so we just <laughs> wanna make sure that we, we're sensitive to people's time and there's you know like 11 or 12 of these things to get through for folks. So. Um, why don't you take a couple minutes, though, and and make a closing statement if you want to? You know, the the stump speech as to why people should vote for you.
2: Sure, thanks, and and thank you for for giving me the hour to speak with people. This is obviously a very unusual campaign, and a lot of things that we normally do, such as holding in person fundraisers, uh, meet and greets, uh, walking neighborhoods. We're, we're just not able to do. And so any opportunity to speak to people directly is, is very much appreciated. You know, I've been on the council since 2009. And I think if people look at my record, what they'll find is that I am a thoughtful, progressive, pragmatic council member. Um, I'm very much interested in the future of this city. I understand that there are some people who wanna look backwards and have fond recollections of the city um, and, and I don't believe that the city they're remembering is a city that ever existed. Someone posted a, a picture on uh Facebook just the other day that showed all the big homes that existed in Santa Monica where all the rich people lived many years ago. So we've never been this sleepy sort of middle lower class beach town. We've always been a tourist attraction. I grew up in the San Gabriel Valley. And when I was little, we used to come to Santa Monica, um, you know, to the old pier. And my parents danced at the La Monica Ballroom to Lawrence Welk. We've always been a tourist city. We've always been a, a busy city. We've always been an urban city and I, I think what we need are people who are looking to build the Santa Monica of 2050, not 1950, and I'm one of those people. I think my record shows that I care about the people who live in the city. I believe that every person in the city, regardless of where they come from, their color, their race, their creed, their economic position, has a right to thrive, and we need to make sure that our city provides those opportunities for people to do so. Um, I also believe that we do need to address the pressing issues of the day, economic recovery, building more housing, and homelessness. And I promise everyone that I will work very hard to address each and every one of those issues in a meaningful way so that we can continue uh, to build a city that works for everybody. Um, But I I hope that uh, people will look at my record, will understand where I'm coming from, and I just very much appreciate them taking the time to spend some time with us here today and listen to what I have to say. But, uh, you know, I'm a thoughtful progressive, I'm a pragmatic progressive, and I think I'm the person that in these difficult and challenging times can help lead the city back, not to where it was. We want to build a better city but build a better, less auto-centric, more sustainable, uh, more fair, and more just city for everybody. And that's my plan if I'm re-elected, so thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Santa Monica Politics Podcast, powered by the Santa Monica Daily Press. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Music for the Santa Monica Politics Podcast is provided by The Brig
1: Band. The Brig Band is an L.A. jam band that's been playing on the West Side since 2002.
0: Their regular members and guests have played professionally with everyone from Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, and Stevie Wonder, to The Doors, Fishbone, and Stevie Man. If you want to find out where they're playing next, go to thebrigband.com.